Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. All right, 1 John chapter number 1. We started this series last week, and we started in chapter 5, actually. We're calling this series Confident Before God, because if you get to the end of the book, John tells you the purpose for why he wrote. What he says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, is that he wants us to know that we have eternal life. He wants us to, to be confident, to know that we know that the eternal life of God is in us. He goes on to say that he wants us to know that God hears our prayers and answers our prayers. He wants us to know that sin and the devil can't have us. He wants us to know that we're firmly in the hand of God. He wants us to be sure. He wants us to have assurance. And he, what he does is through the course of the book, he gives these different tests to believers because you're left wondering, well, how can I be sure? Okay, you want me to know that. What are you going to tell me? You know, are you going to tell me that I, I, I prayed a prayer? Are you going to tell me that I meant it? Are you going to tell me, hey, if you were genuine, if you were sincere, if you have enough faith? Well, how do I know if I have enough faith? How do I know if my faith is real? How do, how do I measure that? This seems very squishy and intangible. And he will give you not squishy and intangible things. He will begin to give you these very concrete tests that you can apply to your life to know, am I born of God? Does God know me and I know him? Do I have eternal life? Is this real? And he will give you three different iterations of tests. One is a doctrinal test, what you believe. And you can, to a degree, quiz someone on if they're a Christian or not based on what they believe, the doctrines that they will uh, assert are real and true. But that's not all of it. He also gives us these moral tests on how we would live. Then he gives us these social tests on how we would love. And if you put them all together, you can get this compilation. You can get these tests that help you know, am I really a believer or not? And my goal through the series is just simply by the end of the summer that you would either A, have confidence that this is real, I have heaven, my sins are forgiven, or B, if you don't have that confidence, that you would get saved, that you would put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And today he gives us actually really three tests mingled into one. We'll see these tests alternate as we go through the book, but we're going to look at all of chapter number one and see both a doctrinal and a moral and a social test this morning. So if you would, we're going to start in verse number one, a little bit of background. Jesus had a lot of followers. Out of all of those followers, there were 12 that were his disciples that were with him pretty much all the time. Of course, 11 of those were legitimate, and one Judas betrayed him and was a son of perdition. But out of those 12, there were three that were the inner three. They were his closest companions, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And arguably, out of the three, the one that was the closest, you're talking about Jesus's uh, best friend, humanly speaking, when he was on earth, would have been John. And John wrote the Gospel of John, which is the story of Jesus and his ministry and his life. And we have preached through that previously, a couple years ago. The point of the Gospel of John is that you would believe. It's written to unbelievers. But then John also wrote three epistles or three little books that we just simply call First John, Second John, and Third John, 
you can think of these as discipleship pamphlets. These are little discipleship pamphlets written to believers, written to people that John knew, his little children is what he calls them. So almost think of it as, as John writing to his Sunday school class or his small group, this, these believers that he wants to encourage and he wants to help. And here's what he says in 1 John chapter number 1. He starts and he says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Now, I'll stop for a minute. Those two verses and verse number three are a grammatical tangle, okay? There's not a period until the end of verse number three, and there's all these phrases piled on top of each other. And this actually, when you dissect it, is pretty similar to the Gospel of John, how he starts. And what John is saying simply is, that which was from the beginning, the word of life, I'm quoting these things, the eternal life, which was with the Father, was made manifest unto us. And what he's talking about is the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls Jesus light, he calls Jesus life, he calls Jesus Jesus, he calls Jesus a lot of things, but he says that Jesus was manifested unto us, he was incarnate, he came, and he says uh, twice over really, we heard, we saw, we handled, we bore witness, and what he's saying is we, we have eyewitness testimony to Jesus. Jesus was a little historical figure. He was here. I was with him. I felt him, touched him, smelt him, walked with him, spent time with him. He was real. And then he says in verse 2 that he wants to uh, declare, that he wants to bear witness that he wants to bear witness of this Jesus. In verse number three, he kind of sum summarizes it and says, that which we have seen and heard, we declare unto you. So I want to declare this Jesus unto you. I want to bear witness of this Jesus. Why? Well, verse three, that ye uh, also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We want you to share in fellowship with the believers in Jesus. We want us to be together in fellowship. And he says, truly our fellowship is with God and is with his son Jesus. Now, we can understand this. My uh, members of my body are all in fellowship with each other right now. My eyes and my ears and my mouth, my tongue, my hands, my feet, they're all working in concert. And they're all working in concert because they all have fellowship with my head. And to the degree that my members or my uh, nervous system loses connection with my head, that's going to pose problems for the rest of my body. And my body will not work in the harmony or fellowship that it needs to have. If you were to dismember me and you were to cut off my arm and now I no longer had that, now the nerves no longer ran to my brain, that would be a problem. This arm won't work in fellowship unless it's connected to the head, right? And what he's saying is we are the church, we are the body of Christ, Jesus is the head, and if you're connected to the head, if you're connected to God, then it would make sense that we as his believers, we're connected to each other, we should have fellowship with each other. Fellowship in church, although you can have fellowship halls and you've probably been on a church fellowship that was tantamount to coffee and cookies, it's a lot more than coffee and cookies, it is this shared relationship that we have with each other because we have the same Father. We have the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can understand this even from a human perspective, that when you share a father with someone else, a sibling, maybe even a half-sibling, 
that there is a connection, there is a bond between you as siblings that is tough to explain exactly. And even if you don't always get along with your siblings or perhaps you don't have anything to do with them now, there still was and is a connectedness between you because you have the same paternal father, you have the same dad. Which is why if you found out today on Father's Day that you had a long-lost sibling that was a, a half-sibling, a half-brother, a half-sister, and you shared the same dad, there would probably be something in you, even though you never knew this person before and you don't know them now, there would probably be something <clears throat> inside of you, excuse me, that you wanted to reach out to them and get to know them and establish some sort of relationship with them. Why? Well, because you share the same dad, right? We get this on a human level, on a spiritual level. He's saying when we share the same dad, then we have fellowship with each other. And then he says this in verse number four, and I love this. These things write we unto you that your joy may be full. He says, I'm going to attach your happiness to this stuff. And that is an encouraging note for me as he starts the book, that I want you to have full joy, right? Sing with joy. Live with joy. Pray with joy. Have joy in your life. I know a lot of Christians, and I even know a handful of churches, that are characterized by being somber or, worse yet, by being angry and hostile. And we'll see in just a minute. We're going to talk about sin and declaring sin and those sorts of things. There's, there's certainly a place and a time for that. But Christians should be characterized and marked by joy. Joy. I, I loved the song this morning, the first song, and I don't remember all the words, but I remember the phrase that we sang over and over again that produced joy in my heart. Our God saves, right? He redeems us. He cleans us. He forgives us. That he saves us. That should be joy invoking. We should be people that are marked by joy. The life in Jesus should be one of joy. And if you think that God gave you the spiritual gift of being cranky or critical, I hate to break, your, to break it to you, but he didn't. Grumpy Old Men was a fine name for a movie, but it's a bad name for a men's group at church, right? Like, it's not supposed to be that way. If you are waiting for us to start the curmudgeon ministry, don't hold your breath. Like, we're not doing it. There should be joy in the church. We should laugh. We should have a good time. We should enjoy life. We should enjoy each other. That's, that's part of life in Jesus. It's one of joy. And here's what he says in verse number five, and I want you to pay attention to this because he begins to give you some of these tests or these birthmarks of a born-again person. Someone who's born again, they'll bear these marks. Here's what he says, verse six. If we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Can I get an amen? If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now I'm going back to verse number five. I know I skipped it. We'll hit it in a minute. But here are these tests that he gives us. The first one is a doctrinal test. The doctrinal test is what we believe and here's the test. It's very simple. We're sinners. And he says it twice, unequivocally. It's bold stuff. If we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and you do not have the truth. The truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say that we have not sinned, 
We make him, God, a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, if you don't have the truth and his word is not in you, then you're not saved. You don't have eternal life. That's, that's how it works. And he's trying to give you a test. The test is a simple doctrinal one. You need more than this to be saved, but you don't need less than this. And the test is we're sinners, and don't deceive yourself to think that you're not. Now, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, you'll see a whole lot of self-deception that takes place. You'll see a whole lot of people that deceive themselves into thinking that they're not sinning, that their sin is fine, that their sin is right, but they don't have it. You can go back to Noah, who these people are, their thoughts and deeds are evil continuously, Genesis would say. And Noah becomes this quote-unquote preacher of righteousness. Noah becomes, according to Hebrews 11, this one who condemns the world, this one who steps up and says, here's truth and here's right and here's wrong. And they don't listen and they won't respond and they won't repent and condemnation comes. You go to Moses. Moses is known for leading the Exodus and for delivering the law. And and there's a lot of reasons for the law, but arguably the primary reason for the law was to reveal the sinful nature of our hearts and the holy nature of God. And so the law comes, and now there is this thing to measure ourselves by to a degree and to say, do I do that, and do I do that, and is there sin in my life? And here's the law, and Paul would say it this way. Paul would say, I had not known sin except it was by the law. But when the law said, thou shalt not covet, oh, It slapped me upside my head. I didn't realize the covetousness. I didn't realize what was in my heart and what was there and how it was nasty. But the law revealed it to me and it showed it to me. And the law is given one of the primary reasons to show us how sinful we are. It's it's like a theological MRI. It reveals what's happening under the surface and it shows you that there's lots of spots and blemishes and some nasty stuff down there. You find in Romans 1 that there's these people that have changed the truth of God into a lie and they begin to deceive themselves. You find in Judges that every man does that which is right in his own eyes. He thinks it's right. It's not right, but there's self-deception that has taken place. And they do that which is right, but it was evil. It was wrong. You see this all over the place. And this says simply don't deceive yourself. Christians know that they're a sinner. Christians know they sin. And if you study the Bible, especially in Romans chapter number 5, you'll find that it says very boldly that we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And there is a difference. An apple tree does not bear apples. Or excuse me, an apple tree does bear apples because it's an apple tree. It's not an apple tree because it bears apples. Whether it bears apples or not, it's an apple tree. You sin because deep down you are a sinner. It is your nature. And we know this. If you've ever been around a child, ever, you get this. The child that comes into the world and you do your best from day one to start to love them and help them and you start to try to encourage them and put good positive things into them at an early age, you you know, one-year-old and two-year-old and three-year-old and you begin to tell them, be nice and be kind and be sweet and share and don't lie and you begin to program that kid to try to do what's right but what do they do oftentimes? They do the opposite, so you're right. A plus. How? 
You're programming them to do right. Well, they have a sin nature inside of them, and you don't have to program them or teach them to hit or to be angry or to bite or to, or to steal or, or not share or to take away or to lie. You don't have to program that into them, and no one had to program it into you because you have a sin nature, and because you have a sin nature, you are a sinner. That sin comes out of you, right? And this says Christians don't deceive themselves. Christians admit that we're sinners, that that's there. We, we have that doctrinal truth. Now, the world many times doesn't have that. And we'll act like, no, that's not wrong. No, it's not sin. No, it's just, you know, it's right and wrong. It's, it's super subjective. It just depends on the culture you live in and what they told you. And, and you're telling me I should feel bad for that. I don't think I should feel bad for that. The world takes things that are evil and wrong and dirty and turns them into the things that they celebrate and they love and they commend and they, and they say that these are right. And, and it's all messed up. But Christians understand this because for you to be saved, for you to be a Christian, you have to. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. You have to walk through the low door of humility and admit, I am a sinner in need of saving. Because Jesus came to save people from their sins. I can't save myself. Forgiving myself is not going to work. Cleaning myself up isn't going to work. Giving myself justification or eternal life is not going to work. I need Jesus to save me. This is, this is bottom shelf for Christianity, Right? We admit that we're sinners, and there's so many implications of this. You can understand the world. This literally is, a, is, a, is part of a worldview for you to filter how you see them and you and our world. For you to understand that the problem underneath your problems is your sin nature. Is that old heart of stone, as it were, that you need to be regenerated, and that needs to become a heart of flesh, and you need God to change you. Why, this is why we pray in the model prayer, deliver us from evil. Because I can't deliver myself from evil. I, I can't change all my malformed desires. God, I need your help. I need you to work in me. I need you to do this. It helps you get to the problem under your problems. Just in nature. It helps you understand parenting, kids. There's been a lot of iterations of this, and I've mentioned this to you before, but... There's been a lot of iterations of basically just affirming and, and encouraging kids. Even back in the 70s is really where this started with Dr. Spock. The idea that kids are basically good. So encourage them and love them, affirm them, and just give them good soil to grow in and watch their goodness blossom and watch them just unfold into a beautiful person. But that fails to account for a sin nature. It fails to come to the reality that we're all sinners. And then you have this generation of people that grew up in the 70s and in the 80s and they are affirmed and now they're not only bad and sinners who don't have much of a concept of that, but they also now have a lot of self-confidence. And now those people are doing a lot of parenting and it's not going so well, best I can tell. It's just a basic understanding. There's a sin nature. Our children need to be regenerated and born again. Like they're, they're, I hate to put it this way, but they're little reprobates. They need to be changed, right? It helps you understand society. I want to choose my words carefully here because I don't want you to hear something I'm not saying. But there's a ton of talk in recent years. It's been there to a degree for, for a while, but especially in recent years, about systematic sins and organizational sins and sins that are not just local to a person but are kind of manifested by 
uh, a government or an organization or a denomination or something like that. And there's, there's some truth to that. And I'm not saying just throw our hands up in the air and say, well, there's sin and we can't change. We have a sin nature except by God. And, and what are we going to do? It's sin nature. I'm not saying that. But I get, what's the right word? Concerned with people who basically have this idea. There's whatever they t- deem to be bad organizations and systems and these bad people run those. And so we'll just take those and give them over here to the good people. And the good people, which is generally them and, and you know, their counterparts, we will create a good system and a, and a good organization and a good denomination or whatever it is. And it fails to account for the reality that there's really not good people. There are people that can do good things, but fundamentally the Bible says that all humans are, are sinners. We have a sin nature. You're not going to take something and get it over here and have this utopia. It won't happen. Even if the system was perfect, the people who run it, they're going to be sinners too, just like they were. And their sin may be different than theirs, but it's going to be a problem no matter how you shake it. And so we should work for justice. And I I could give you a, a whole sermon on how that could play out in a million different ways and ripple effects in our society and lives and in denominations and those sorts of things. But at the same time, we should understand the reality that we're sinners the sin nature is there, and our expectations, frankly, should be a bit lower. So there's a lot of reasons you need to understand this, but you have to be able to say, hey, I'm a sinner, I sin. That's a doctrinal test for a Christian. But then there is this moral test that we get, and this to me is the most profound. And the moral test is how we live, and here's what it is. It says that we as Christians will walk in the light and we will expose and confess our sin. Now listen to how it said, verse number five, it tells you this. It says, this is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, which is something that we want to say, and we want to say confidently, but if we say that and we walk in darkness, then we lie and we do not the truth. Vice versa, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Amen, amen. Verse number nine, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, you're gonna have to hang with me. I gotta teach before I preach, okay? A lot of this hinges on this metaphor of light and darkness that John begins to employ. And you're told unequivocally, you're lying. You don't really have fellowship with God if you walk in darkness. But you do if you walk in the light. And God is light and there's no darkness in him. And you're left wondering, okay, if this is the test, what does he mean by walk in darkness versus walk in light? And if you can understand that, then you can understand the test and you can apply it to your life. But if you don't understand the metaphor and know what he's saying, then you're lost. You're really confused. And to be honest, this can be a little bit confusing because the term light is used in multiple ways and it's employed as a metaphor in multiple ways, not just in the Bible, but by John himself. John won't always use the metaphor of light and darkness in the same exact way. 
And you find, if you look in the scriptures, that you can see light as kind of the nature of God and even God in creation making all of nature and saying, let there be light. You can see salvation in terms of light or being illuminated. You can see our moral character being described as walking in the light rather than darkness. You can even see light used as uh, bringing to revelation something that we prefer to keep hidden. It's that last one that I believe John is getting at. Bringing into the light deeds, things that we prefer to be hidden or in the darkness. And this is for a couple reasons. The reason I think that he's talking about walking in the light, this progression of revealing and uncovering our sin as we confess and forsake our sin, is number one, he said in verse number five, if you caught it, that Jesus had taught this. If, if you look at verse five, he says, the message which we have heard of him, this is what we declare. Okay, what message? Well, that God is light. There's no darkness. We walk in the light. So it can, that can help. That can help me understand what you mean because I can go back to the words of Jesus. Where did Jesus teach on light and darkness? Now, it's still a little bit complicated because Jesus employed the metaphor of light and darkness in multiple ways. But really, the first time you see Jesus talk about light and darkness, you would find in John chapter number three, and I think that this will explain it. If you can understand John 3, you can understand what he means. Jesus meets Nicodemus, and Nicodemus says, how do I be born again? What do I do? And Jesus tells him the famous John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that whosoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then Jesus goes on to tell Nicodemus in verse number 19, and listen to this. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. So someone who's in the darkness and not in the light, that's to be condemned. It's evil. Verse 20, here it is. For everyone that doeth evil hates the light, neither comes to the light. Why? Lest his deeds should be reproved. Coming into the light or walking in that light would mean now that my evil or my sin is made manifest and now it's revealed, and now I will be reproved, or I will be rebuked, or I will be corrected for this, and I would prefer to keep that hidden. I would prefer to keep that to myself. Verse 21, but he that doeth the truth cometh to the light. Why? That his deeds may be manifest, that they're wrought in God. So what he's saying simply is that when you're walking in integrity and you're walking in a way that is right and moral or upright, then you will naturally, you'll be okay with coming into the light. Fine, check my records. Run the tape. Look at it. Look what I did. Look what I said. I don't have any shame. I don't have any guilt. I did what was right. I walked with integrity. You, you'll, you're happy to be in the light there. But when you lack integrity, when you sin, when you, when you break the law of God, then there's this natural propensity to want to hide, to want to cover, to want to wanna make that less damaging than it possibly could be to you and to keep that in the darkness so that it doesn't come out, right? And this is what John is talking about when he says, first of all, that God is light. Now, God is light, has a, you, there's a lot of implications from that. But central to the context of this text, he's saying that God is someone who never does anything shady. Right? What is shady behavior? The stuff that you want out of the light into the shade. The stuff that you want in a measure of darkness. That's why we call it shady. God never does anything shady. God never does anything wrong. There's never been a time where God has done or said or thought 
anything that he felt ashamed of or guilty of or was sinful or was wrong, that all of God's deeds he's proud of and he's, he's wise, he's perfect. He never does anything that was darkness or hiding or wanting to covering, you know, some, some wrong or some sin or some lack of integrity. That's not God at all. And we as his followers, we will walk not in darkness, not be these people who want to cover our sins all the time, although we do do that sometimes. But the people who will walk in light, who will reveal, who will expose, and this is why he will insert to you the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all the sin. Right? That makes, it seems like a really strange statement without understanding the context. As you bring and uncover that sin, well, if you know Jesus, then he'll, man, that's done. It's gone. If we confess that sin, he's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive us that sin. So bring it into the light. Confess it. Walk away from it. Now, if it hasn't registered, let me try to make this register for you. Guys, if you do me a favor, turn on the lights for a minute. I know there's still some light in here. Ghost stories, right? Uh, <clears throat> okay? I am in the darkness. Now, there's some light from my iPad and there's some light in the back of the room. So you may be able to see a little of what I'm doing. But I could hide things pretty easily. I could do sleight of hand. It'd be tough for you to know how many fingers I'm holding up, when and where and how. But if I put the light on, I'm, I'm, I'm more revealed now. Now my face is revealed or my hand is revealed or my shoes are revealed. Now I can see this. Now, the reason the lights are out right now is because I know a lot of Christians, and I have been one of the Christians, Not, and I still am sometimes, if I'm honest. Someone who doesn't want to walk in the light, but I don't want to be in darkness either. I want to work the spotlight. Right? I want to take this part of me that I'm proud of, and I'll show that. Put the light right there. Yeah, yeah, that looks good, and that's fine. There's a ring on that finger. There's no warts. That, finger, that hand works real good, and I'll spotlight that, but I'll hide this over here because I don't want you to see this over here. And there's a difference between working a spotlight and walking in the light. Guys, if you do me a favor and turn the lights back on. But when the lights come on, now I'm walking in the light, and now there's a revelation of, you can see all of me. Right? Here's, here's who I am. And not only have Christians always, perhaps, been able to fall into the trap of spotlighting our behavior rather than walking in the light, it's, it's become, in my estimation, increasingly easier for us to do this because so much of social media is built off of this process of spotlighting the, the parts of us that are smiley and warm and good and awesome, but never spotlighting the parts of us that aren't great, right? I will post about that vacation with the picture of the kids and the smiles on their faces, and I'll get some likes off of that, but I won't post that pretty much it was miserable and I wanted to come home early because me and my spouse don't like each other right now. I'm not putting that out there. And we fall into this trap often of picking and choosing the things that, okay, that's fine, and I'll bring that into the light, but there's some other things that I won't bring into the light. And the best way I like to illustrate this, I got it from a pastor buddy of mine named Matt, is that there are things in our life that we're okay with spotlighting. And it's different for all of us. And if you're over there and can't see this, forgive me. But generally speaking, we're, we're okay to talk about our job. 
you know, where we work and what we do and how long we've been with the company and if we like it or not and those sorts of things. We're okay to talk about our kids, at least a good part of our kids, what grade they're in, how old they are, what their, what their birthdays are, what we're doing for the family vacation, you know, all those sorts of things. We're okay to talk about sports. Let's talk about fantasy football. And let's talk about the Steelers and let's talk about the Bucks. I think they beat the Giants in this series mostly this weekend. I don't know exactly, but we'll, we'll talk about that stuff. But then there's other things that we don't want to talk about. We don't want to bring those into the light that are under what has been dubbed the line of shame. These are the things that we feel shame about. Now, shame and guilt are two different things, just to thread this needle very clearly. Guilt is where you fail to live up to a certain moral. Shame is where you fail to live up to a certain model. It is possible to feel shame about something you should not feel shame about. They're, they're, they're brothers but not twins. You can feel shame that you were poor, which probably had very little to do with you. You probably shouldn't feel shame about it. You could feel shame of how God made your nose. Things that you shouldn't feel shame about. Guilt is the morals. Shame is the models. But nevertheless, there's this line of shame, the things that we don't want to bring into the light. And the reason we don't want to bring them to the light is because they may think differently of me. They may ostracize me. They may cut me out. They may weaponize it and use it against me. They may tell other people, stay away from him. He's a creep because he has such and such in his life. Well, there's all this stuff down here, right? This is where a lot of the sin in our lives is. Lots of Christians will say, yeah, I'm a sinner and pray for me and I'm not perfect. Generic. But talking about like the stuff, like talking about the, the pornography addiction that you keep, keep, keep struggling with or the alcohol addiction or the gambling addiction that, is it an addiction now? I don't know. I'm, I'm a little too into it. Like real stuff, right? This, this is a real sermon that's meant to help real people with your real stuff. That sort of stuff that they, I don't want them to know about that. This is where we put this, the struggles in our lives. These are, are things that aren't entirely sinful, but it's where we, we shove our anxiety, right? Our depression. The things that are going on inside of us that I'll try to, I'll try to hide it. I'll try to mask it, right? This is what shame does. Shame makes you engage in hiding behavior, i.e. Adam and Eve. They sinned. They feel ashamed, so what do they want to do? They want to hide their bodies. They want to duck behind the trees. They want to get away from God. They want to hide from him. So I'll, I'll hide this stuff. I'll hide that it's going on. I'll hide that I'm constantly critical and I can't stop it. Sometimes things in here are sins that happen to you. They're, they're not, it, it's sin that came, I'll put, at you. This is where you have the abuse the words they said, the things that are tough to talk about, the things that you're scared, if I bring it into the light, they will run. Now, here's, here's the problem with this, especially when you talk about the sin 
in our life. Number one, when you get good at hiding it from other people, you'll start to think you're good at hiding it from God. And you'll cease to, on the most basic level sometimes, confess your sin to God. Who sees it knows it. And I love that it tells you, rest assured and be confident. If you confess your sins, that God is faithful and he's just to forgive those sins, you can bring that into the light with God. He already knows it's there, but you can uncover it and you don't have to be scared of him. You don't have to wonder how he'll react. That he, he, will, he will take that away. But this also poses problems, even if you start to confess with the Lord, but there's never any of this with the body. And if you read the text, there's a lot of we, there's a lot of fellowship one with another, there's, there's a lot of this kind of being a community project. And while I'm not advocating that you would take all the sin in your life and that you would tell every single person in the world and, and publicize all of it, I am for sure advocating but there need to be other people and other Christians and other pastors or counselors or group leaders or accountability partners in your life that you walk in the light with. Because if they're walking in the light and I'm walking in the light, we can be in the light together. That you talk about this with. Because here's what will happen. Take your spouse for an example. Let's say you're dating. And you want her to like you. I'll talk to you guys. This could happen both ways. But we'll say the guy. You want her to like you. So you put your best foot forward, right? And then she starts to like you, you know, miracle. Lo and behold, it happened. But she starts to like you, and she likes you more, and now you're starting to get serious, and you're wondering, man, do I bring that into the light? I don't know if she's going to like me if I bring that into I don't know if she'll run. And maybe you do, maybe you don't, but oftentimes you don't. And then you end up proposing, and she says yes. Do I, do I bring it up now before marriage? And you keep it hidden in the darkness. Maybe you're, maybe you're struggling with it currently. Maybe you were struggling with it back then, but you keep it hidden. And then you get married, and then you take vows. And here's what happens. And it's a shame, and it's, it's destructive to relationships. That she tells you now, I love you. I'm committed to you. I vow to you. I I admire you. I respect you. But you will constantly tell yourself, if you knew the real me, like, if you knew that stuff, I don't know. I don't know if you'd like me then. I don't know if you would appreciate me then. I don't know if you would respect me then. I don't know if you'd be as committed. And because you're hiding, because you are in the darkness, their love and their commitment to you, their appreciation of you and admiration of you, it never becomes sticky. It never actually sticks. You never actually really deep down believe it, believe it, because you are hiding. You're walking in the darkness. And the only solution, it's, it's kind of like the, the Aladdin problem, right? Right? You've convinced her that you're a prince. But I don't know if she'll really love me. The only solution is to admit you're not a prince. The only solution is to walk in the light. Not just with your heavenly father, but with the human relationships that are appropriate. 
to have fellowship with each other and to really be able to help each other and for the, the, the church of Christ to be what the church should be. There has to be a measure of ick. There has to be a, a measure of mess. There has to be a measure of we're helping each other with real stuff in the money problems, in the, in the anxiety, in the depression, all these things that, that are part of our lives. And it cannot be that there's somehow this, this, this place where we all have to act put together, where we all have to act like everything's okay, and we constantly have to be above the line of shame. And what, what John is saying is that if you are a Christian, fundamentally, your heart will be bent towards the light. And your unsaved counterpart probably won't be that way. But just like the plant that sits in the, in the corner of my bedroom that is next to the window bends toward the light and it chases that light that's coming through the window. And my wife is really good because it starts to lean and tilt. And so she rotates the plant and then it leans and now it's all twisted up amongst each other because it keeps bending towards the light. It doesn't always get there, but it bends that way. That a Christian is someone who will bend towards the light that you will want to reveal, you will want to confess, you will want to have a clean account with God. Deep down, you will desire to have a clean account with your siblings or with your parents or with your spouse or whoever it is, that you will want that to happen. You may not do it perfectly or all the time, but that desire will be fundamental to who you are. And just like God will see you to the bottom and love you to the top, you will want that to happen. Now here's the final test. And this is, this is not the strongest test that he gives, but I think it's there nevertheless. The final test is actually one, there's a social test and this is how we love. And this means that there's some that need to walk in the light and come into the light, but it means there's others that perhaps they're coming into the light with. And it's, and it's our job to have hearts of humility and forgiveness and to make that sanctification a community project. This is why the terms of we are there. This is why fellowship one with another is there. It's not just about you making it right with God, but oftentimes making it right with other people. And here's why nine times out of ten we don't make it right with other people. I'll do it with God because I know how he'll treat me. But I don't know how they'll treat me. Actually, I did it once before, and it didn't go so well. And we're scared of how they will respond. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know how they will respond. I don't. I don't know how he will respond when you tell him, I broke our marriage vows, and I had an affair for three years. I, I don't know for sure. He'll be hurt. Trust will be broken. Yes, but it should be that the church understands we're sinners. We have a sin nature. If there was ever a group of people that would understand that there's going to be mess, wouldn't it be us? If there was ever a body that would say there's going to be issues that we're going to have to deal with, and this, this is not, we're not saying it's okay, we're not putting a stamp of approval on it, but we, but we are saying that we understand it will happen, and we're not going to react in such a way where we're just flabbergasted, and we're just surprised, and how in the world, and put a scarlet letter on them, and they can never be in any ministry of service, and, and I'm going to run around and tell everybody, be sure you keep your kids away from them, because you know, they're a real scumbag, and, and you don't want to be around them, whereas you know me, I have it all put together. Like That should not be the church. It should be that there is a community, there's an environment where there's like, look, I've been there. 
I've struggled with that addiction too, and God saved me from that, and God's helped me here. Let me testify, and I can talk about the guilt and the shame from my abortion, and I can talk about what I'm struggling with right now, and I know that the church should be a place that models the heart of Jesus. Remember what happened in John chapter number 8 when that woman was brought into the light, that adulterous woman? The deeds of darkness were uncovered, and everybody knew it, and they threw her before him said, what do you say to her? And what balance he had. I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. He had the truth. Sin is sin. A spade is a spade. That's wrong. Don't do that. But he also had compassion and not this condemnation and this giant guilt trip. Parents, please understand this. You want your kids to walk in the light. You want them to walk in integrity. They're going to mess up. They're going to do some dumb stuff, and so did you. Do not create an environment where they are so scared to talk to you that they never will. Tell them the truth. Tell them that sin is wrong. Teach them morals. Teach them the Bible. But also tell them, God will love you, and God will forgive you, and God will be patient with you, and so will I. Johnny, if you ever get to that point, no, I will always love you. I will always help you. I will always be receptive to that. Tell yourself, like, when they come with these things, like, don't freak out. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying normalize sin. Not at all. But I am saying there should be a heart that models the heart of God that is one of graciousness, that is one of forgiveness, that is one of humility and understanding that who am I? I sin too. I have my issues too. Let's work on these together. Let's pray together. Let's keep each other accountable. Let's help. An environment, when that exists in a small group, when that exists in a church, when that exists in a family, it is a healthy thing. And there should be part of this that a social test of we love each other and we're willing to walk through each other through some of this mess. And here's the point. Walk in the light. If there's any part of you that has like, stink. I really don't like to think about this. I really want to ignore it. I, really, I do want to talk about it, but the only thing I want to do more than talk about it is not talk about it, is not confess it, is not bring it into the light. I'm going I'm to beg you, take a baby step. I know it's scary. How do I approach the conversation? How do I let them know? How to, take a baby step. Shoot a text, shoot an email, have a conversation that just says, we need to talk about something that's kind of heavy. I don't want to talk about it, but can we talk? Just start there. If you need an easy out, shoot it to me. Pastor at harvestbaptist.info. One line. Hey, I got to talk about something. And we'll figure it out. But walk in the light. And if you're not there and you don't need to bring something to the light, hey, I walk in the light, I'll make my deeds manifest. I'm, I'm not perfect, but I'm doing okay. Then have a heart for other people. Have a heart to help them. Have a heart to love them. Have a heart to not condemn and judge and be heavy, heavy hanging over your head. Have the heart of God. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the time. 
to try to understand a little bit of John chapter number one. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for being real. You are a historical reality. Jesus, we thank you that we can have fellowship with you and because of that, we can have fellowship with others. Thank you for being so true. Thank you for dying on the cross and giving your blood so that you would cleanse us of sin. Thank you for being faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to be our advocate. Thank you for loving us in this way and wanting to redeem us. And Lord, as your people, we want to walk in the light. We want to walk in integrity and uprightness and holiness. And when we fail, we want to bring it to the light. We want to confess and forsake and not live there and not stay there. Lord, help us to have your heart. Lord, I pray that for someone that already knows, I don't pass the test. I don't doctrinally, morally, I don't, I don't pass these tests. I'm not a Christian. I pray that they would become a Christian today and that they would put their faith and their trust in about, I want to encourage you to respond to the Lord. Perhaps there is a sin that you need to confess, or many that you need to confess. Perhaps you need to commit to him that you're also going to have that conversation with so-and-so, with your group leader, or with that person. Start that process. Don't delay on that. But if you're in the room and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, come to him bottom of the love you the time. Come to him and say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I am wrong. Jesus, I need you to forgive me. I need you to cleanse me. I need you to change me. I'm putting my faith and my trust in you. That's why he died for you. He died on the cross for your sins. Our symbol as Christians is a cross, not a ladder. He died for your sins. You don't climb the moral ladder and make it all better yourself. this announcement video. It's pretty quick. I think it's only a minute or two, but watch it and as soon as it's done, you can be dismissed. Welcome to Harvest. If this is your first time with us, we hope you feel right at home. We want to take a few minutes to let you know what's happening in and around our church. We are privileged to be hosting a community blood drive on Friday, July 8th in the gym from 12 to 5. Did you know that one blood donation can help save up to three lives? Register at redcrossblood.org under Harvest Baptist Church's blood drive. And thank you for giving the gift of life. Our next Intro to Harvest class is coming up on July 10th following the 1030 service. Childcare and refreshments will be provided. 
You can register for this class on the church website today. Calling all parents of young kids. Mark your calendars for our annual Amazing Crazy Memory Making Vacation Bible School Week. It's coming up from July 11th through 15th from 9 a.m. to 12. You can register your kids online and you can register to volunteer on our website as well. Thank you for spending the day with us today. Remember to connect with us on social media so you stay connected with all that's happening in and around our church throughout the week. Until next time, have a great week.